Good morning. Welcome to Christ Community Presbyterian Church once again. Glad that you're here with us this morning. We're continuing our series in Genesis uh, Foundations, and we are looking at Noah, and particularly Noah as he and his family have exited the ark and are now on dry land. Uh, just as a reminder, last week we looked at God's mercy in depth, um, and that theme of God's mercy continues in Noah's life and his family as they're reestablishing humanity and as well as uh, all the animals. Um, and the focus in terms of God's mercy here is not so much on, on the preservation, if you will, of that, that going through the waters as much as it is on God's provision for life. And today we're going to be talking about that idea of God's provision. Another way to put it might be the big theological idea might be um, God's providence, God's sovereign care of his creation. We'll see that here in the text. So with that, why don't we go to the text? We're going to be looking at the end of chapter 8 of Genesis, verses 20, all the way to chapter 9, verse 17. So Genesis chapter 8, verse 20 to Genesis 9, uh, verse 17. You can follow along in your Bibles or in the bulletins. Hear God's word. But God remembered, sorry, we're going to go forward to verse 20. Then Noah built an altar to the Lord and took some of every clean animal and some of every clean bird and offered burnt offerings on the altar. And when the Lord smelled the pleasing aroma, the Lord said in his heart, I will never again curse the ground because of man. For the intention of man's heart is evil from his youth. Neither will I ever again strike down every living creature as I have done. While the earth remains, seed time and harvest, cold and heat, summer and winter, day and night shall not cease. And God blessed Noah and his sons and said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. The fear of you and the dread of you shall be upon every beast of the earth and upon every bird of the heavens, upon everything that creeps on the ground and all fish of the sea. Into your hand they are delivered. Every moving thing that lives shall be food for you. And, I, and as I gave you the green plants, I give you everything. But you shall not eat flesh with its life, that is, its blood. And for your lifeblood I will require a reckoning. From every beast I will require it, and from every man. From his fellow man I will require a reckoning for the life of man. Whoever sheds the blood of man, by man shall his blood be shed. For God made man in his own image. And you, be fruitful and multiply. Increase greatly on the earth and multiply in it. Then God said to Noah and to his sons with him, Behold, I establish my covenant with you and your offspring after you and with every living creature that is with you, the birds, the livestock, and every beast of the earth with you, as many as came out of the ark. It is for every beast of the earth. I establish my covenant with you, that you again shall never you that never again shall all flesh be cut off by the waters of the flood, and never again shall there be a flood to destroy the earth. And God said, This is the sign of the covenant that I make between me and you and every living creature that is with you for all future generations. I have set my bow in the cloud, and it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and the earth. When I bring clouds over the earth and the bow is seen in the clouds, 
I will remember my covenant, that is between me and you and every living creature of all flesh, and the water shall never again become a flood to destroy all flesh. When the bow is in the clouds, I will see it and remember the everlasting covenant between God and every living creature of all flesh that is on the earth. God said to Noah, This is the sign of the covenant that I have established between me and all flesh that is on the earth. The word of the Lord. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word and we thank you for your covenant promises. That they are true. That they are always fulfilled. And Lord, we ask that you would help us to see your care of your creation as we look at your text your word this morning. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Um, in his comic uh, science fiction novel, I think it was also a radio show before that, uh, Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy, for any of you who are there. Uh, Douglas Adams sends his hapless protagonist, Arthur Dent, uh, on a un- out into a universe uh, to be explored. He just kind of, there's a long story. Um, And in this journey, he comes to realize that Earth was, in fact, a giant supercomputer. Actually, it was a supercomputer created by another supercomputer that was meant to answer this ultimate life question, the the question of life, the universe, and everything. And Arthur Dent eventually finds the answer to this ultimate question of life, the universe, and everything. And the answer was, anybody? 42. So for those of you who've never read the book, it's not necessarily worth your time. Maybe, maybe not. And if you didn't follow anything that I said about the book, I get it. The book is absurd. It's absurd. Um, The answer to the, the, the question of life is absurd. 42 is an absurd answer. When people asked him, they were looking for some, like, how did you divine the number 42 when you wrote it down? And he's like, I looked out to my garden, in English terms, out to his yard, and I just said, I need a number, not too big, 42 is good. It's absurd. The book is absurd. The answer is absurd. But in a world without God, there is no answer to the question, what is the meaning of life? I think the nihilist and the hedonist, or Douglas Adams here, the author of this work, are right. Apart from life, apart from God, life is absurd. Now, I realize fully that an atheist can create meaning for their life and can live it out in ways that even correspond to human virtue. And so I don't want to pretend that, you know... Anybody who doesn't believe in God has no meaning in their life. Many create meaning. They base it on some moral code, some observation of the world. And some of you here today may be in that boat. You may consider yourself an atheist or an agnostic, and you create meaning. But I want to challenge you. I want, I want, to, I want to ask, why? Why have that moral code? Other than survival, other than just surviving, what could possibly for you define that higher good? What's the aim, ultimately? Do you have one? 
I don't know. I, I, I tend to think you probably have one aim, pleasure, happiness. And isn't that an elusive thing? I mean, if you're searching out pleasure and happiness and you think that's the ultimate aim, it, 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 it feels so elusive. And your morality that you define to ends up bending and turning based on the morality du jour, right? The morality of the day. It kind of weaves its way around what the world kind of defines as good and right. Or it's defined by inner feelings, as we've looked at in the past. At the end of the day, the only person that is sort of for you is you. Honestly, I find... Adam's vision of absurdity more consistent, more compelling. Life apart from God is absurd. And and these foundational accounts that we've been looking at since Genesis 1, as we've gone through this, that we've been exploring over these past weeks, lays out a a worldview or a foundational view, an understanding of the world that we live in. And it's a world created by God, a a world not just created by God, a world that he created good and very good, and he placed man, his image bearer, in it. And, of course, man falls, and we can understand the brokenness of the world, a world which God judges in the flood, which, because of the evil and the extent of evil and wickedness of man, But here, the story continues. God providentially restores the world that he might bring about the redemption of his people through the promised seed of the woman. And all of this, all of it, in order that we might become his. That we might be his worshipers. Those who find joy and contentment and purpose and life in Him. There is meaning and significance in this world. It makes sense of the beauty that we see when we look at the world. We can say God's handprints are all over the place. But it also makes sense of the pain that we see. The, the darkness, the the tragedy, the evil, the wickedness, the suffering. We can make sense of it because we can understand sin entered into this world and corrupted it. It gives This worldview gives expression to our longings and our hope that isn't grounded in ourselves, but is outside of ourselves. The world created by God is not an absurdity. A mere matter of chance and randomness. And this morning as we come to our text and continue to fill in the stones of the foundation and kind of look at them and observe them, one big stone that we're going to set in place today is this idea that God's loving care is in this world. His hand of providence is there caring for his creation. And not only do we see, sort of broadly speaking, his care, but we see his care for his creatures. And particularly, not just all the creatures, the animals, we see his care for that in the text, but we also see his care for us. For frail, broken humanity. 
And just to put this very plainly, what we see in our text this morning is God cares for us. God cares for us. I don't know about you, but there's something really extraordinary that happens when someone cares for you. You, Have you experienced this? A friend comes over to your house, which I've experienced very recently. A friend comes over to your house bearing a meal, unasked for. Just because they care. Something happens to us when that happens, right? We have this feeling of of joy, of security. When we get a phone call from a distant friend who says, hey, I'm just just calling a check-in. We have that sense of care. Causes something to happen in us. We get peace and comfort. We feel loved and protected. But how much greater is it to know that we have a God who cares for us in all our needs? It's of a different magnitude. It's of a different level of greatness. And this is what I want to explore this morning. God cares for us. And he enters into relationship with us. And I want to look at this in three parts. First, the Lord's patiently cares for us. I'm going to focus on that idea of patient care. Second, God cares about our life. And then third, God cares for us through covenant, through that relationship that he makes with us. So God cares for us. The first, the Lord patiently cares for us. Now, as you might guess, the scene was quite radical. Uh, The ark has set onto dry ground. Noah and his family are called to, to go out of the ark. And as they come out of the ark, uh, they are joined by a whole host of animals that are entering into this brand spanking new world. Unblemished until their feet set foot on the ground, right? Unblemished. And there in that place, Noah builds an altar to the Lord. And he takes the clean animals and he makes sacrifice. For them, I just want to point out really quick here, just about Noah, uh, just as a remarkable person. One thing that we see throughout Noah is his action. We never hear him speak. Did you notice that? He doesn't talk, but he acts. He is a man of action. He builds the ark. He enters the ark. He exits the ark. He now offers sacrifice to the Lord. And I want to think about this sacrifice for a minute. Um, it might feel like it's out of the blue. Here's this sacrifice uh, that, that some, somehow feels a little bit uh, um, just kind of out of the blue. But remember, if we go all the way back to Adam, Adam had two sons. Adam and Eve had two sons, Cain and Abel. And you'll remember at that very early stage, Cain and Abel are offering sacrifices to the Lord. Abel from the flocks, Cain from, his, from the fruit of the land that he had grown. Of course, one was acceptable, one wasn't. But this idea of an offering to the Lord was instituted at some point following the fall. You know, we looked at Adam and how Adam and Eve were covered with clothes. Maybe this animal death that happened when they were clothed with the skins of animals was the first. We aren't told that explicitly. We don't know, but possibly. And what I find really interesting is that that means that some from the time of 
at least from the time of Adam and Seth, all the way up to the time of Noah, they had been making sacrifice. They had been offering burnt offerings. You'll remember that when God sent them into the ark, that he said, bring seven of every kind of clean animal for this very purpose, that they might offer sacrifice to the Lord. Interesting about the burnt offering. It's the oldest offering described in the Bible. It is an offering that can be used for thanks, for sin. Under the Mosaic law, the entire animal was to be consumed. This was offered up every, was supposed to be offered up every morning, every evening. Uh, And throughout uh, Leviticus, it's described when this thing is being burnt as a pleasing aroma going up to the Lord. And so we see that here. Scripture describes this as the Lord smelling the pleasing aroma. And we've got to be really cautious here. Scripture uses human experiences to describe the things of God. It takes the language and, and experience of humanity and applies it to God as an analogy. So we call these words, these word pictures, um, anthropomorphisms, or anthro being from man, morphis, the change. This is a... This is a sort of an action or a, a, a sort of a, a picture that we apply to, to God, but it isn't exactly what God, God, God doesn't smell. He doesn't have nostrils in the way we have nostrils. Um, similarly with feelings, God's anger is often, when we read God's anger, it's the nostrils again, go figure, but it's this time that God's nostrils are flaring. Um, that's the, the Hebrew, when you read the word God was angry, often the language behind that is God's nostrils are flaring. Um, these are word pictures applying human form or feeling and anthropopathism, that's a, the feeling side, anthropomorphism, the sort of action side of, of humanity, applying human form or feeling to describe God in order that we can relate and understand God. Because apart from this, we have trouble grasping at the eternal. Right? So it's a way of accommodation Scripture uses for us to understand who God is. So when you read these words, um, just realize what, what's going on. Um, he doesn't have nostrils by which he smells, but God is pleased by our worship and devotion to him. So Noah, he's pleased with Noah. God is angered by sin and rebellion. He doesn't have his nostrils frailing, but he's angered by sin and rebellion. And God is pleased with Noah. Noah shows his devotion, his thanksgiving, and his worship through the sacrifice. And the aroma wafts up to the nostrils of God. What we've seen about seen with Noah is that he is a man who has found favor with God. He is a man who is righteous. He's a man who trusts. He's a man who obeys. And now he is a man who gives thanks and he worships God. That's his first act in the new world. Think about that. It's his first act in the new world. His first act was not to build himself a house. It was not to go gather for himself materials to start building a city. His his goal, his first act, was to worship the living God. It's as if this moment is very much like Adam in the garden walking with God in the cool of the day. This is is the pleasure 
that we were created for, to be with our God. Of course, there's glaring differences between Noah exiting the ark and coming onto this land, and Adam being formed of the dust and being put into the Garden of Eden. There's some very glaring differences. There's similarities, fellowship and delight, but there is a glaring difference. Noah was offering a sacrifice. Adam never had to offer a sacrifice before the fall. He enjoyed perfect fellowship, communion, and worship of God without that sacrifice. But now we come to the nub of my point. Here is Noah offering the sacrifice that's pleasing to the Lord. But my point, the thing that I want us to think about, not just about Noah and his action, but it is about God and his action, and this action in particular, the Lord patiently cares for us. He cared for Noah. Notice what the Lord says here. It says, The Lord said in his heart, I will never again curse the ground because of man. For the intention of man's heart is evil from youth. Neither will I again will I strike down every living creature as I have done. While the earth remains, seed time and harvest, cold and heat, summer and winter, day and night shall not cease. Um, the early 20th, 20th century theologian, biblical theologian, Gerhardus Voss, uh, Dutch uh, by origin, but uh, was at Princeton and then was at Westminster Seminary, uh, said this, described this in his biblical theology. He called this God's plan of forbearance. God's plan of forbearance. Now, the only time I ever hear the word forbearance is when it comes to my educational loans. (laughs) When you're in school and you take out a loan, you get your, your loan is in forbearance. You don't have to pay it until you're actually making a little bit of money. And the government, um, n- now they're being forgiven, I guess. But um, uh, this is what we think of, the, the, of forbearance. The loan holders are patient and bear with you until you are able to repay the loan. That's, that's the nature of uh, forbearance. But here in the text, God is patiently bearing with his creation. Now, why do I say that? He's bearing with his creation. Isn't his creation brand spanking new? Didn't he take righteous Noah with him and everybody else was destroyed? And so, in what sense is he bearing with Noah? But did you notice what he said here in the text? The only people left are Noah and his family. Yet God says, as he promised to himself never to curse the ground again, nor strike down every living creature as he had done, he says, for the intentions of man's heart is evil from his youth. Who is he talking about? He's he's talking about Noah. He's talking about Noah's sons. He's talking about how sin, the fall, does not escape It continues through the line of Noah. And so here, God looks at Noah, and he sees Noah, and he he has a heart for Noah. He cares for Noah, and so he bears with Noah patiently. He bears with Noah patiently. This is divine forbearance. 
Not only that, but he promises to care for his creation through the regularity of the seasons. Did you notice that? For as long as the world continues to exist, God will care for his world. And I think we have to stop and ask the question, why? Why? Why is God patient? Why does he bear with us? Why does he keep things as they are? Why doesn't he just bring another flood the next time Noah does something wrong? Why doesn't he just, every time, start again? Why doesn't he just wipe everyone off the face of the planet? Because of his mercy and his love. Peter tells us to count God's patience as salvation. God desires for us to know him, to enjoy him, to worship him, to be in fellowship with him. Just as Adam and Eve were in the garden and just as Noah and his family came out of the ark and worshipped him there, God longs for his image bearers to be in relationship with him. And so he bears with us in our weakness and our sin. This is one of the most precious realities I know that God bears with us sinners. Each and every day I wake up and I, I sin. And each and every day I go to my Heavenly Father and say, Lord, I've done it again. Have mercy on my soul. And you know what? He does. He is full of mercy and grace. Full of mercy and grace. Now, I want you to notice something else in the text, a little notation. Not only does he bear with us despite our sin, but he says this. Um, He says these words. I will never again strike down every living creature as I have done while the earth remains. So forbearance doesn't mean ignorance. Ignoring our sin. It doesn't mean that the things that we've done won't be held to account. What it means is today is the day to repent and trust and believe in Jesus, for we do not know what tomorrow brings. There is a day still to come when the earth will no longer exist, when it will be wiped away. I love the passage uh, in Isaiah that we read earlier in our service in the assurance of forgiveness. Hear these words, with everlasting love, I will have compassion on you, says the Lord, your Redeemer. This is like the days of Noah to me, as I swore that the waters of Noah should no more go over the earth. So I have sworn that I will not be angry with you and will not rebuke you. For the mountains may depart and the hills be removed, but my steadfast love shall not depart from you and my covenant of peace shall not be removed, says the Lord who has compassion on you. I want us to just rest in this for just a second. What, what he is saying, what the, what the Lord is saying through the, the prophet Isaiah, is he is saying, even when the end comes, and the day of judgment comes, and the world is wiped away, the hills are gone, for those who trust in the Lord and know him as their Redeemer, his steadfast love, will never be removed from them. And so my question for you is, do you know the steadfast love of the Lord? Have you put your trust in Jesus? 
The Lord patiently cares for us through his providential care of this world and his forbearance. The seasons come and the seasons go and the days happen. But he also cares for our very life. Um, notice this next section in verses nine, uh, in chapter 9, verses 1 to 7. And I want to highlight two things. One is, or I want to highlight one thing to begin and then we'll come to a second thing. But the first thing I want to highlight is uh, these two verses, verse 1 and verse 7. They're the same, right? And God blessed Noah and said to his son and his sons and said to them, be fruitful, multiply, and fill the earth. Verse 7, and you, Noah and your sons, be fruitful and multiply, increase greatly on the earth and multiply in it. Now, now think about these verses, 1 to 7, are their own little section. This is like two bookends. And so we're going to take this one little section and consider it. Uh, this is a section that talks about God's care for your life. First, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. Have we heard that before? Of course, this is the thing that were, was given to Adam and to Eve, you know, be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth, and subdue it. Uh, Genesis chapter 1. And this was their, what we call, consider their cultural mandate, that they would go into all the earth and reflect God's image and his creativity and his, and his life-giving and bringing life to the world and, and you know, having babies and going forth into the world, as well as all the work that is done. Uh, that reflects God as creator, filling the earth. This is what now God says to Noah, the second Adam character. It's a recapitulation of that mandate. And yet, I think there's something different about this recapitulation. There's some similarities, but there's also some very big differences. They, they, they highlight God's good purpose for mankind. He reiterates it, right? It's the same idea. You're going to go and you're going to promote life and you're going to have fill, fill the earth and reflect my life giving by the work that you do. Um, but then there's some stuff that's pretty different. Verse 2 jumps into this relationship with the animals. The fear of you and the dread of you shall be upon every beast of the earth and upon every bird of the heavens and upon everything that creeps on the ground and all flesh of the sea and into your hands. They are delivered. Every moving thing that lives shall be food for you. And, I has, and as I gave you the green plants, I give you everything, but you shall not eat flesh with its life. That is its blood. Now, if we go back to Genesis, we remember that God also gave Adam dominion over the animals. Similarly, Adam, you still have dominion over the animals, but there's some very distinct differences. Here, you know, presumably in the garden, there was, there was just caring for those animals, shepherding them, guiding them. But here there's, there's two things. One is we see there's fear between man and animal. And secondly, the animals are given to man for food. Um, but then there's this really strange sort of aside here, but you shall not eat flesh with its life, that is, its blood. Now, I don't know about you, but that's never been a desire of mine. I don't, I don't really have a whole lot of desire to eat blood, drink blood or eat animals that are full of blood. Like, we drain the blood, right? That's what we do, and we cook it and 
all of that stuff. So what is this? Why, why this little notation here? Again, everything is affected by the fall, right? Noah is now coming out of the ark. It's distinct from the time of Adam because sin has entered the world. Corruption has entered the world. There is enmity. There is strife. There is conflict. But he reiterates, yes, Adam, you have dominion over the animals. This is part of your role. And I have given them to you for food. But you shall not eat flesh with its life, that is, its blood. And interestingly, remember I mentioned the two, the two brackets? The two brackets highlight God's good purpose for mankind. Be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth. Another way to put this is these two brackets are talking about being forces for bringing life to the world that you live in, whether by procreation, whether by, um, um, you know, filling the earth with all your good work. But here in the middle, in the center of this section, don't drink blood. That's weird. All right? Because usually when you have something like this, a structure like this, where you have sort of a balanced text, the thing in the middle is the most significant thing. Here, the outside seems to be the most significant thing. But the middle, what is that about? Don't eat animals with blood still in them. Don't with their life still in them. All right. Well, here's the thing. Throughout Scripture, when you see blood, it symbolizes, it indicates life. Blood is the picture of life, right? We can all of a sudden, our mind is racing. Think about all those those sacrifices where they take, remember I mentioned the burnt offering? Well, what they do is they take the animal, they slaughter it, they take the blood that they have drained and they splash it on the sides of the altar and then they burn the, then they burn the animal. What's that with splashing blood on the altar? Elsewhere in Scripture, we have the blood of animals actually being sprinkled on people. All of this bloody sacrifice stuff. Why? Even circumcision is a bloody sign of cutting away of life. Why all this blood? Well, here's, I think, at the heart of this. Blood equals life. And God is establishing again the significance and sacredness of life here in the text. He is saying, you, Noah, And your seed, you're to go out into the world and you're to promote life. You're to be about life because I am a God who is about life. And therefore, this sign of life, this blood, you're not, don't eat it. That this, this picture of life is about preservation. Doesn't mean you can't eat the animals, but the blood itself is, is a picture of what is sacred. And that is Life and so, of course, the animals' lives in themselves are not—they are not image bearers. Uh, they can be eaten. They can be used for sacrifice. But it still pictures and points to God's love of life. And this gets even more developed in these next few verses. Notice here it says, "In your lifeblood, I will require a reckoning." From every beast, I will require it. Meaning, if an animal kills a human, I'll require it. If another man kills another man, I'll require it. From his fellow man, I will require a reckoning for the life of man. 
He says it three times, four times. Whoever sheds the blood of man, by man shall his blood be shed. Why? For God made man in his own image. What is the image of God? One who brings life. So my question is for us as we think about this. First, God has a heart for uh, God has a heart for our lives. He cares about us. He, he desires that we would live life in such a way that if someone were to take our life, that person's life is forfeit. Now, the question is, is this grounds for capital punishment? I would say, yeah, this is actually a, a classic text for, go, for talking about capital punishment. But I'm not about to go into, is capital punishment uh, an appropriate thing in our day and age in this society with all the injustices that we face? I think that's a bigger question. That's a really big question. But this concept of life for life is embedded in Scripture as an identifier of that we, as God's image bearers, are to promote and care for life because God himself promotes and cares for life. God cares for each and every life. You might ask, well, what about the flood? God just wiped out all of humanity. How can you say that he cared for life? Why did he wipe out humanity? Because of the violence. Remember, remember uh, Cain's uh, you know, progeny down the line. You get to Lamech. He says, for, just, uh, for, for someone just wounding me, I've taken vengeance. His life was forfeit. And this brings up an even bigger question. Okay, if God is the judge who requires a life for a life, what about us? Jesus said in his Gospels that if you hate somebody, it's the same as murder. Your life is forfeit. But of course, this is the good news. God is the defender and the shield. God is patient and forbearing. There will be an accounting, but there is a better blood than Abel's. There is the blood of the Lamb of God, the one who is the ultimate image bearer of the Lord, of God Himself, the Lord Jesus Christ, who Himself goes to the cross willingly and sheds His own blood for us that we might not pay the penalty for our sin. All right, I'm going to finish this up. There's so much here. But I want to ask these questions as we think about this. God cares for each and every life. He's put us in this world to go and be fruitful, multiply, and care for life just as he does. In fact, he gives us eternal life. But what's your attitude towards life? We've just gone through a period of time in our country where we re-wrestled or continue to wrestle with the issue of abortion. Do you care for the life of the unborn? We continue to wrestle in our nation with the injustices of this world, of the, the racial injustices, of the injustices against the poor and the oppressed. We look at injustices across this world, and the question is, do we care for life? Are we promoters of life? Do we stand up for it? 
Or we just sort of sit back? Do we look at the persecuted church and look indifferent? Do we cry out to God to have mercy on them and support them with our prayers and lift them up in life? Are you somebody who goes through the day thinking about the people that you interact with who are faced with this very real truth that their life is forfeit to God on account of their sin, but that if they know the loving kindness and salvation of God, they might be saved, covered in the blood of the Lamb. And have you considered their life as you walk out into the world? We're about to have this whole great seminar on evangelism, and I think it begins with us having a heart for those who are dying. Do you care for their life? Finally, and in conclusion, we'll end here. God cares for us through his gracious covenant. Notice in this last section that we have sort of the explicit covenant now made with with Noah and his sons. It's a covenant that is not just for Noah and his sons, but it is basically for all living creatures. It is the covenant of creation. He's saying, never again. Never again will I flood the earth. Never again will I cut off all flesh. Never again will there be a flood to destroy the earth. I'm going to care for you. Why? Because I'm setting my affection on you as the people of this world that I made as image bearers of me. And I'm going to bear with you because I'm a God who makes promises and who is faithful to keep his promises. And we have this beautiful sign of the the bow in the sky. And just a couple notes, and then I want to just consider uh, the Lord and how God's covenant is kept through Jesus. But I want us to consider the bow just for a second. Uh, The bow is, of course, in the ancient Near East world, if you look at um, any reliefs, any pictures, you'll often see... Uh, the kings holding a bow in the, in the relief. Uh, they are a sign of power and strength and destruction, and that is a sign of judgment. I am the king who is come. And here God says to, the, to, the, to Noah, and he puts down his bow, and he says, here is my bow. I lay it down in the sky. And here's the other thing I wanted to know. Not only does he lay down his bow of judgment and say, I... I am going to be faithful to you. I'm going to make a covenant with you. I'm going to be faithful to the promises that I made all the way back in the garden. And I continue through you and will continue on with your son, Abraham. But the other thing I want to notice is this. We look up at the rainbow, right? I love seeing a rainbow in the sky. We look at the rainbow and we're like, look at God's promises. He is faithful to us. He will not flood the earth again. Until he comes, he will preserve this world so that we might repent and believe, that we might have trust in him. But notice what the text says. When I bring clouds over the earth and the bow is seen in the clouds, I will remember my covenant. Let's say you'll remember that I made a covenant with you. God says, when I place my bow in the sky, I will look down on it in remembrance. You remember what I talked about last week about remembrance? Remembrance is God's mercy. 
When God looks on the bow, what He's looking on is you in His mercy and His grace. He's saying, I see the sign that I have set in place and I love you and I'm going to protect you and care for you. I am the God who cares for His creation. I uphold all things by the power of my word and nothing happens outside of my control. You can go out into the world and you can say, there is nothing that the world can bring that is outside of God's sovereign hand. He cares for His creation. This is an encouraging word, too, as we think about a world ravaged by environmental disaster and disease and all these things, and we can think, God, are you, are you around? Are you actually in control? And God says, here's my promise. I will never again destroy the earth. I will not cut off humanity from the earth. I care for my creation because I have made my covenant. And friends, as we come to the Lord's Supper, we're coming to the table of a precious covenant keeper. The one who makes covenant with us by his blood. The way in which he is able to forbear with us is because of Jesus. He looks forward to his son and says, until my son comes and has He is crucified and died and his blood is shed for the remission of sins. And until he goes and ascends to my side once again and comes in glory, until that day, this world will continue. Why? Because I care for my creation. When you go out into the world and you're talking to your friends and your neighbors, do you have that same kind of care that God has? The kind that bears with overlooks, considers the person as image bearers of the Lord Jesus, do you consider them that way? Earlier we read uh, this, these words in the scripture reading. He said to Abraham, Behold, my covenant was with you, and you shall be the father of many nations. No longer shall your name be called Abram, but your name shall be Abraham, for I have made you a father of a multitude of nations. And I will make you exceedingly fruitful. And I will make you into a nation, and kings shall come from you, and I will establish my covenant between me and you and your offspring after you as an everlasting covenant to be your God Do you know the Lord Jesus Christ? Have you put your trust in the one whose blood covers your sin, whose life was shed that you might have eternal life? Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you.